Hey folks, welcome to the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast, Episode 1. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today we'll be joining the state deer biologist, Charlie Kilmaster, to discuss all things Georgia deer hunting. And, and we cover a variety of topics on this episode, uh, everything from the upcoming deer season uh, to some of the top quota hunt choices, uh, CWD, um, how the state monitors the deer population and, and the various aspects of um, Charlie's job with the DNR. So again, just a, a whole host of deer hunting and, and deer management topics covered in today's episode. So I know you're going to get a lot out of this. I know I did. Um, but before we jump into that, a few housekeeping items. Um, first of all, thank you to Everybody who uh, listened to the previous episode, everybody who subscribed on on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're using, uh, I really appreciate that. And if you are listening now and you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, That way you never miss another episode of the podcast. Um, I would really appreciate it if you would uh, give us a rating, uh, a positive, hopefully, review on the whatever podcasting platform uh, you listen to. And again, we would certainly appreciate that. And uh, as well as, you know, just sharing us, sharing the podcast uh, with your friends. Now, this podcast should hit about June 24th. So if you're listening to it uh, anytime around then, the quota hunt application period is in full swing. Um, you can get on the uh, georgiawildlife.com website now and apply for the various quota hunts. Um, you have a little while to do that, or at least for the deer hunts, you have until September 1st. Uh, alligator application is due July 15th, so if you're gonna, you want to put in for an alligator hunt, make sure you do that here in the uh, next couple of weeks or, or you're going to be out of luck. So get those in. Um, we'll actually talk a little bit about uh, which which quota hunts provide the best opportunity for uh, quality bucks versus just quantity of deer. Um, and then we talk about that right at the end of the, the interview with Charlie. So with that in mind, we're going to jump right into the interview here. Again, I know you're going to enjoy this talk we had with Charlie Killmaster. All right. I have on the line, my friend and uh, former coworker and uh, the state deer biologist for the Georgia DNR Charlie Killmaster. Uh, how you doing, Charlie? Doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, not a problem, man. I'm, I'm excited to have you on here. Um, I got a lot of, of deer-related topics that, that I want to cover with you today, uh, but I know that we've promised to keep this thing around an hour, so uh, we'll just go ahead and, and jump right into the interview, and maybe you could just kind of kick things off by telling us a little bit about um, how you were introduced to, to hunting in the outdoors and and how that's led you to your uh, current career with the Georgia DNR. Okay. So, yeah, um, my first um, real experience with outdoors was through Boy Scouts. So, um, I, uh, I, I, got, I spent a lot of time outside. I, I wasn't really into hunting that much uh, at an early age. I went a time or two. Um, but I really didn't become an avid deer hunter until uh, until I was in college. So um, that's kind of how my, my hunting came about. Um, but as far as my inspiration for the career, I've got a um, uh, I got an uncle, a great uncle, and his son, my second cousin, that were both wildlife biologists. 
um, one for the Fish and Wildlife Service and one for Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And um, my cousin actually did uh, a master's and a PhD at the University of Georgia on deer, uh, worked under the great Larry Marchington, uh, Dr. Larry Marchington. And uh, so those two right there really served as a as a big inspiration for me. And, uh, and you know, when I got into college, I wasn't really sure. Um, well, I started out at ABAC and, uh, I decided I wanted to, I started out in forestry, just knowing that I wanted to do something outside. And once I learned what cruising timber was, I quickly shifted over to wildlife once I got up to UGA. <laughs> and, uh, uh, my intro to wildlife class was a, a whole lot more fun. And, uh, you know, I dabbled around. I did an internship with wood storks, and uh, I had an interest in ornithology. And then uh, towards the tail end of my undergrad, I, uh, I got a job working at the UGA deer pens for David Osborne. And the first time I put my hands on a live deer, I knew from that point that I was going to be a deer biologist. And that, that really just set the stage. Um, and I, I, I lucked up and, and got a Got a, a master's assistantship um, under uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Bob Warren and, and uh, Dr. Carl Miller, co-major professors, uh, on a deer project, and that just kind of propelled me right into uh, into my career, and it uh, no doubt helped me uh, help me get my position where I'm at now. As far as your uh, your job with the DNR, I know you you wear a lot of hats as a deer biologist for the state. Um, can you just Give us a little bit of an idea of, of what your job entails on a on a day to day basis, or, or even a, a seasonal basis. You know, just some of the primary uh, responsibilities that you have. Well, you know, as a biologist, I got into this to uh, you know to work outside and work out in the field. And the reality of being a deer biologist is that I sit here in my office all day. <laughs> so uh, day to day, day in and day out, uh, I sit here in an office most of the time. Um, but, you know, it, I do get out a lot to do, um, uh, you know, I, I, I help teach workshops. I do a lot of uh, uh, media relations interviews for TV and podcasts and uh, radio. And I, I get out and do that. Um, and, you know, when I get out in the field, it's mostly just, you know, kind of getting out of getting a break from the office and I go tag along on one of our research projects or go sit at a check station or something like that uh, that we've got going on. But by and large, the, the duties of a deer biologist are uh, coordinating, um, coordinating things on a larger scale, which, uh, you know, we have biologists and technicians throughout the state that do the actual field work for a lot of that stuff. So. It's, uh, you know, it's, I mainly serve in a, in a, uh, uh, a coordinating role there. So, um, you know, starting out, leading into the fall, uh, Georgia actually operates on committees for game species. So I have a deer committee, which is me. I'm the chairman of that committee. And then I have a representative from each of our regional offices, as well as representatives from private lands as well as our new, um, some of our new uh, deer management assistance program biologists. But um, we hold a, a deer committee meeting uh, leading up to hunting season. And there we discuss our annual data collection, what our data collection needs are, uh, what our disease surveillance needs are, where our focus needs to be for uh, collecting samples for chronic wasting disease, monitoring hemorrhagic disease, 
and uh, any new protocols that we have for that upcoming season. So throughout the season, our field biologists and technicians collect deer, deer data, biological deer data, um, sex, age, weight, um, antler measurements on bucks um, from our wildlife management areas. And we also go to, to in order to get uh, data from private lands, we collect data from deer processors throughout the fall. So they spend a, a, a lot of their time in the fall doing that, that data collection. Uh, I'll work with our license and boat registration unit and our uh, contracting company, Brant, that uh, operates our uh, harvest reporting system, Georgia Game Check. Uh, make sure that we have everything up to date on that, monitoring uh, uh, the data that we get coming in from there, as well as working with our, our local uh, GIS specialist who develops our, uh, you know, some of the pool mapping that you see, uh, mapping and graphs of, of those game check data. And um, that's most of what's going on during the deer season. Uh, and, and really, I deal with a lot of uh, interviews, media interviews that time of year. Deer vehicle collisions peak during the rut. So I get a lot of stuff out of Atlanta um, talking about deer vehicle collisions, how to avoid deer vehicle collisions and, and that sort of thing. And uh, so after, uh, you know, once we get into winter and the deer season's winding down, then I have uh, a lot of that data that I could start working with. And also we start gearing up for our annual harvest of wildlife survey that we that we try to conduct right at the very end of deer season uh, around the 1st of February. So each year we do a telephone survey of, of a sample of our licensed hunters. And we ask them, I, it's, it's pretty pretty involved survey, but it gives us a lot of information about how much effort they spent, how many days they went hunting, how many deer they killed. It gives us a lot of real um, drilled down information that we don't really get from the harvest reporting system. And it's a good, uh, uh, the, the harvest reporting system is actually just another complement to our annual hunter survey. So uh, once I'm, once I'm done with that, um, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, data crunching time and getting everything prepared for our federal reports. You know, a lot of what we do is federally funded by uh, Pittman-Robertson Act uh, funds, which is, uh, for those that don't know, it's that uh, that excise tax on firearms and ammunition that's, uh, that's uh, levied at the manufacturer's level that then gets doled back out to the states. So my projects that I work on, everything we do to monitor gear is one of those federal projects that's funded by that. And so we have to uh, develop annual reports that, uh, that go in there. And then, you know, just in general, uh, throughout the year, I'm constantly working with the University of Georgia on whatever research projects we have going on. We've got a great research project going on in the mountains right now trying to uh, see what we can do to uh, maybe maybe turn the tide on our on our severe uh, deer population decline that we've seen in the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So, um, and we've also got another project that's wrapping up right now. We're actually developing a new method for camera surveys that doesn't require bait and doesn't require you to unique uniquely identify individual bucks. So, uh, really makes a big difference on, on the amount of time that it takes to do one of the surveys and we can still get some very valuable information. So um, 
you know, the workshops I've been doing. Uh, I also wear the feral hog hat for the agency. Um, I'm the so-called feral hog expert. Um, so I, I've been doing a multi-agency uh, traveling roadshow almost, the feral hog control workshops the last few years. And um, I work with some big field days, agriculture and wildlife field day that we do every third year. Uh, a lot of you know, education and outreach or things like that. Um, and, uh, that's, that's most of it. And then, uh, then the rest of it's just a bunch of oddball stuff scattered around. I, I deal with a lot of phone calls on, uh, what's wrong with this deer. I get that a lot. People send in trail camera pictures of whatever, you know, affliction the deer has going on. And I, uh, I, you know, try to decipher what's going on there and what we need to do. Uh, if we, you know, if it's if it's something to be concerned about, do we need to actually go out and have somebody shoot that deer and get it into the lab and see what's going on? A lot of, a lot of, you know, disease related issues and developing policies for how we do things like uh, how we handle illegally held captive deer, um, how we handle our chronic wasting disease, uh, surveillance and response, um, carrying out the actions that are in our deer management plan. And, uh, and then uh, I guess finally the, the, the policy side of things is, is uh, the last thing that I deal a lot with. Um, we, uh, we have to develop regulations every two years and, uh, we also work with the legislature on helping to develop new, new laws that are beneficial for wildlife management and uh, deer management. So a uh, little bit of everything. And uh, we're, we're actually, we're, we just wrapped up our regulation cycle this year. And uh, so uh, working on editing those changes in the popular guide that's going to be coming out soon. So uh, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of hats. Uh, man, you touched on so many different things in there uh, that I'd love to dive into. Um, and one thing you mentioned early on was uh, the, the the DMAP and and some DMAP biologists. Um, is that staff now? And and what's uh, can you talk a little bit about? I guess what DMAP is and and what's going on with that in Georgia? Absolutely. So. Um, if you hunt in South Carolina or Mississippi, or you've ever been to a state that has a DMAP, it stands for Deer Management Assistance Program, and it's a it's a it's a type of system that um, I think Dave Glenn actually developed it. Um, but it's a it's a type of system where um, the it's a mutually beneficial arrangement between a hunt club or a landowner and the state wildlife agency. Uh, what what we do is we give um, technical guidance first and foremost, which means one of our biologists would come out to visit your hunt club or your land and give you advice on habitat management and advice on herd management. But ideally, we would set that property up in a data collection protocol where they're actually collecting data that, that not only informs management on that property where we can give them site-specific management recommendations, but also helps the state um, by collecting uh, data across from all these properties across the state to, to pool together 
to help inform uh, regional regu uh, regulations for those areas. So we've still got some hurdles to go through. We still need some legislative authority to do uh, to, to offer some flexibility. Uh, some 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 of those programs have like right if you participate and you get a harvest prescription that's uh, that's say beyond what the um, what the parameters of the seat you know the season are the bag limit or whatever um, they they would be able to write site specific management prescriptions that would prescribe a a set deer harvest for that property so uh, there's a lot of benefits um, to that but the main one being uh, having having biologists available to go out and meet with a a hunt club or a landowner and give them uh, advice and having direct contact to answer questions. So we're in the process of getting that staffed. I would say we're not we're certainly not fully staffed. I got two two biologists on. I've got another one starting July one. Um, our our new biologists are Matt Good, um, Calvin Wakefield, and Dr. Emily Belser. I think she's doctor. She was, I don't know if she's defended her dissertation or not, but uh, she's coming to us with some, with a PhD and a couple of years of experience from Texas. So we're looking forward to having her on board as well, but um, they will be available to go out and, and meet. They've got uh, different regions of the state that they'll, that they'll cover. But um, no, I, in the long term, what we'd really hope, to have is a total of seven biologists throughout the state to really effectively deliver this program. But uh, it's, it's going to take us some time to, to get to that point. Yeah. Well, from what I understand, it's the, the states that have this program, it's, it's very popular uh, and I'm excited to see it come here to Georgia. Um, now, will there be a, uh, a minimum acreage to, to be enrolled in the DMAP program? That's what we're looking at. We've got a we've got kind of an outline or a concept of what this program is going to look like uh, in the future once it is fully staffed, um, and and there will be a number of acreage minimums at different tier levels. There's going to be I think it's uh, depending on how it shakes out either three or four tiers, and there is no acreage minimum just for advice. We'll we'll give management advice to anybody that wants it um even if you know if you've got 10 acres it doesn't matter if you're just hunting deer in your backyard we'll give you advice but when it comes into uh you know these other these other levels we do have minimum acreages and there's probably going to be an annual fee associated with some of those participation in some of those other levels once we uh fully uh outfit the program the great thing is, is we will allow cooperatives to satisfy those acreage minimums. And we're, we're certainly want to facilitate, uh, directly facilitate um, the formation of management cooperatives between adjacent properties. So uh, that's something we're looking at. And it, and it makes it easier if you don't have really the acres that you need to meet that minimum. If you can work with your neighbors and, and get everybody on board, then we can we can meet that acreage minimum. Uh, by, by joining properties like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cooperatives are uh, definitely the way to go uh, for landowners like that, where they can kind of join forces and, uh, and impact, you know, whatever deer or whatever wildlife they're interested in at a uh, much larger scale. But, and, and that could be a, uh, a whole other podcast topic. So I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, <laughs> but uh, 
jumping back to a lot of what you talked about as far as your uh, your your job duties um, is looking at data and and the data. Uh, what I'm interested in is is kind of what data you mentioned game check and and the postseason survey. Um, what all data goes into uh, developing the the deer season structure? What all are you looking at to to come up with those deer season dates and doe days and bag limits and all that kind of stuff? Well, um, I hadn't really had to worry about the bag limit much because we didn't have the regulatory authority to to, to regulate it. So um, my whole career that actually changed this past legislative session. We did actually regain some level of control of the bag limit, although we haven't made any changes to it yet. Um, but uh, that left season length and either sex days really being the only tools that we had to manage the deer population. So um, one of the great things about the game check is, is we get um, it's, it's obviously not a complete census of the entire harvest. It's a, uh, we don't get hundred percent reporting on that, but uh, we do keep tabs of the reporting rate so we can really effectively determine trends. But one of the great things about game check is it gives us temporal information or when, when, the, when throughout the season, the female deer, the does especially are killed. And that helps us schedule those, those buck only days or, or the uh, either sex days being the opposite of buck only um, to effectively control the population or, or set it at the level that we need to. And, and a, a few years back, we, we backed off substantially on, on the harvest and it didn't, didn't seem like much because we have a, a an extremely long deer season um, compared to the rest of the country. But, uh, you know, we, we, Played around with uh, with some uh, with some dates. We we first tried making December one through twenty five buck only, which was pretty much totally ineffective, being so late in the season at reducing the harvest. And then uh, we changed gears the next regulation cycle and made some key weekends and especially the first two weeks of the season buck only in the northern part of the state and. That, that was very effective at reducing the harvest. And uh, over the course of two years, our, our, our antlerless deer harvest had been reduced by around 100,000. So that was pretty substantial. And uh, that, that backing off um, brought our deer population up just a little bit and where it is now. And we've given back some of that, uh, some of those buck only days and switched them to either sex, but maintained the first two weeks. And uh, our, our deer population in general across the state is, is in my opinion, from a biological standpoint and a, and a hunter satisfaction standpoint, about as good as we could have it. But uh, um, going back to your question, the timing, the timing of that harvest, the level of harvest, the, uh, the harvest rate per hunter. Uh, really gives me a lot of indication on the population trend, what, what our deer population is, is doing. And I, and I break up the deer population into five, the five physiographic regions of the state. And that's where we make those management decisions is based on those regional, those regional populations. Yeah. So speaking of regions, can you, can you touch on, I mean, what's the issue 
uh, in North Georgia as far as you know the low deer density? What, what's what's caused that that major decline here over the last you know couple decades or whatever it's been? Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty it's a complicated issue, and I and I we really don't have all the answers, but I can tell you what you know certainly what our speculations are and what we're trying to investigate with our research project. So, um, if you've ever been in North Georgia, you'll you'll know that that uh, you know once you get into up close to the Tennessee line, pretty much nearly all of the high elevation is a national forest land. And uh, the low elevations is uh, private land in the valleys. So uh, we've got a, you know, a big expanse. You know, I think the Chattahoochee National Forest is is in the neighborhood of seven hundred fifty thousand acres. So huge chunk of land up there that's uh, that's under federal management. And uh, you know, about thirty years ago, um, timber harvest pretty much all but ceased uh, in in the mountains and. Uh, that forest uh, started a, a steady march towards maturity. And as the forest matures, uh, it clo- completely closes canopy. We don't have, we start to suffer from a, a lack of early successional habitat, which is, uh, you know, the most, to, to us it looks great, but to other people it looks like a, a weedy, nasty mess, which is excellent for deer and a lot of other species. But we don't have, uh, you know, these historic, you know, lightning driven fires that would have, uh, you know, had catastrophic effects and punched holes in the canopy that we used to have. We, we, we do prescribe fire uh, or forest service does prescribe fire, but, um, there's not these, these catastrophic fires in the summertime that actually kill trees and set back succession that creates that habitat. So we have, we have a lack of that early successional habitat and it's, it, we're believing now or we're thinking now that, uh, that that lack of early successional habitat also is, is leads to a lack of fawning cover and we have higher predator populations up there than, than we've, than we've had in, in years. Uh, coyotes are, are doing quite well in the mountains as are bears. And so when you couple uh, high predator populations with lack of adequate fawning cover, uh, we, we believe that that, that that plays a role in it. Um, I, you know, I do, I do feel like there's some past over-harvest issues uh, relative to females. Um, in, in those areas, so it's 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 a lot of lot of issues going on right now that we're trying to trying to tease apart and see see what we can do. But uh, yeah, I, I really think a lot of it is it boils down to predation as a function of poor habitat. So um, I think we could sustain uh, a higher deer population if, if we had um, much better habitat, and that that also has led to our decision this this year. Uh, the basically all Forest Service land east of I seventy five, we have completely shut down the harvest of female deer. Period. You cannot shoot uh, an antlerless deer, which actually includes button bucks as well. So um, that's that's kind of how how dire the situation is that, that we just don't even allow any any harvest of females. Period. Is there any progress being made at all at the the federal level to you know to open those forests back up to timber management? 
There is some progress. Um, it, it's it's on a small scale though. Um, they uh, they are making some headway with with uh, reintroducing some. Um, not necessarily doing. They have done some uh, uh, some thinning projects um, that have been successful, but uh, they've also been you know looking at some some thermal thinning and kind of uh, in in a controlled manner reintroducing a you know a more catastrophic type fire that that can actually kill some trees and punch some holes in the canopy. So, um, but it, it's just a matter of scale. I mean. Uh, you know, when you're you're working on a thousand acres or fifteen hundred acres out of seven hundred and fifty thousand, it's it's just not not at the scale that it needs to be to make a substantial difference. Yeah. Now, now is that more of a function of lack of um, willingness at the federal level to to engage in timber harvest, or or is this still? Um, I mean, are still are we still seeing all these lawsuits and and stuff by some of the environmental groups uh, that are sh- shutting it down? You know, I, I'm not really up to speed on the lawsuits, but I do know there are groups that that actively uh, really keep close tabs on what Forest Service is doing and stay pretty active in in uh, in uh, engaging them on you know wanting to see you know their uh i guess their desires um maintained in the forest yeah and uh which is obviously not like timbers so um so yeah i mean i you know i see both sides of it um and you know i, I do you know we've got a you know a substantial amount of "Quote unquote wilderness where there, where there will be no timber harvest, um, and where we also let fires burn um, until they you know threaten you know human safety outside of wilderness zones. But uh, but the rest of the forest, there's a lot of forest out there that's not wilderness that uh, that that could be more effectively managed. Whether whether it's harvesting timber or whether it's it's simulating uh, you know, lightning, lightning driven summer fires that, uh, that, that produce that, that effect. It's, uh, um, that's not going to change much. I think people would really be shocked if they, if they could go back in time and take a look at the Appalachian mountains, what, what they would have looked like at the time of European settlement. Um, those completely closed canopy bluish green mountains that we, that we know today, would have actually been a kind of a you know an oak savanna or a hardwood savanna and mixed in you know pine savannas and in, in a lot of areas just from that such a heavily fire driven ecosystem and it it, it uh, if you just do a just do a Google image search for oak savanna it, it's it's pretty shocking what that what that would have looked like to the European settlers when they first first arrived here. Yeah, a lot of the environmental groups want us to take a, uh, a hands-off approach and quote unquote let nature take its course, but uh, the fact is we've altered that nature and and we're we've prevented those fires, those naturally occurring fires that we used to have, and that is uh, that has certainly altered the landscape as we know it. 
Yeah, we've replaced it with low intensity fire that manages fuel loads because, you know, the Forest Service owns most of the land at high elevation, but not all of it. And there's a lot of, you know, homes and, you know, that that, that they have a responsibility to, you know, to, to, to try, you know, try not to let people's houses burn up. So, you know, it's just we created this situation where uh, we can't just leave it be if we want it to be like it would have been, um, it's, it requires active management to, to simulate what it, what it did on its own back uh, prior to, uh, prior to European settlement. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back here real quick. Cause I actually, I missed the question I wanted to uh, address when, when you were talking about the, uh, the various data uh, and particularly game check. Uh, do you have any idea what, what the compliance rate is? for game check now yes we're um we're around 65 percent compliance so we've gone down uh so every anybody out there listening make sure you you game check every deer even those especially those because our compliance rate on those is actually lower than it is on bucks so our compliance started out in uh, about 75 percent the first year which was great and then um I guess people are just getting a little complacent over it. And uh, so it's starting to start to take down a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, we, that's where we use, you know, we get those compliance rates by using uh, combining what we get from game check with our telephone survey. Um, it really gives us a good idea of uh, what those actual reporting rates are. Yeah. Can, can you, touch on that a little bit more as far as the telephone survey. I, I know in the past, a lot of guys, you know, and I'm sure you heard it a lot. How do they know, you know, what the deer harvest is? Nobody asked me about my deer or, or, you know, I didn't have to check it in prior to game check. Mm-hmm. How do they have, how do they, how did they know how many deer we killed? <laughs> yeah, that's, it, it's called statistical sampling. Um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we collect the sample of hunters and, um, which is usually in the 2,500 to 3,000 range um, annually. And what you find is when you do these surveys, your average number of deer killed uh, after so many, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really change much. Um, so that's where we make our sample size cutoff. And then we have a confidence interval that, uh, you know, based on this survey, the, uh, the the estimated harvest is this plus or minus uh, however many you know a few thousand um, you know we usually have a a uh, a confidence interval of less than less than two percent on that survey which is pretty accurate and so um, you know using using telephone surveys has been done in a, in a wide variety of applications and it's uh, you know it's it's a very uh, you know, very good predictor of a lot of things because it's, um, you know, you can, uh, once, once you've sampled enough to get that, that confidence interval down, um, you got a real accurate representation of what's going on out there. Yep. So, so there you go, folks. Now, now, you know, <laughs> how, uh, how the DNR knows how many deer are harvested and, and, you know, how many of those are bucks versus does. And... Yeah. Well, and, and, and what I, you know, one, one of the things that I've had the hardest time explaining to people um, 
is is our the way we count deer and the way we uh, estimate populations. I also develop a a population reconstruction model that estimates the number of the, you know the preseason number of deer before the deer season started. How many deer were out there? And uh, you know it it doesn't really it doesn't matter that we we don't have a, an, an absolute 100% reporting rate on game check or uh, the telephone survey. Um, what, what people that, that don't, that aren't in the wildlife management field may, uh, may have a hard time grasping is that we don't have to have a complete census to effectively manage deer. Um, you know, we manage wildlife populations based on trends. We've got, tons of historical trend information and um you know the the people that don't report their harvest tend to not report their harvest year after year and uh and and at roughly the same rate or if we got a way to estimate that rate we can we can manage it but you know when you've got historical information you don't have to have a census of the population or census of the harvest to to know what's going on Uh, we know uh, basically, you know, when you look at our, our deer management objectives for our different regions of the state, it's not it's not an objective that we want this many deer in this region. It's an objective of do we want this region, the population in this region to stay the same, go up or go down? And all you need to do that is, is a population trend. So um, we're, we're able to get that. Uh, that population trend based on on those uh, on those rates that we get from the, from the surveys from game check and uh, and our other our deer processors that uh, you know they give us our our age ratios based based on all the the data uh, you know you've seen up up until this point what uh, can you give us a little bit of a, a season forecast here heading into the 2019 2020 deer season <laughs> you know, I get asked for season forecasts all the time, and uh, you know, it's uh, I don't like doing them because I mean, okay, I'm 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 the deer biologist for the state. You're never going to hear me say that we're not going to have a good season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, I got you're not going to, you know, because if I say it, then we will. If I say we're going to have a bad season this year, then then people aren't going to get out and go hunt. So, um, and then we're going to artificially drive down the harvest. Uh, so no, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, I haven't seen our mass surveys that we do up in North Georgia to know what's going on right there. But, um, you know, I, I think looking at our, our, our spring this year, you know, we did have some dry spells, but we had a lot of rain too. Uh, I think everything's, um, you know, I, I I would say we're probably on par for an average season. Um, our our harvest has been stable for the last several years now, and so I, I would uh, I would certainly expect a very similar uh, similar season to what we had last year. Uh, but you know, it's um, it's you know we've got it we've got you know, we're living in the golden days of deer hunting in the state of Georgia. Uh, we've got a great mixture of quality and quantity. We got immense opportunity to get out there and enjoy the resource. So um, it's it's uh, it's always a good season when things are like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I should have found a, a a better way to phrase that because yeah, <laughs> I, like you said, every season is a, a good deer season, and 
And there's so much, so many factors, uh, you know, while the season's actually going on, to, it's really uh, uh, individual on whether or not you're having a good season is, uh, you know, a matter of whether you're hunting the right spots and, uh, and, and doing the right things. And of course, weather and, and other things that are out of our control. But uh, yeah, you kind of touched on it mainly for most of Georgia. Um, the, 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 the deer population is, uh, is at least stable or, or looking healthy. And that, I guess that's what I was kind of getting at is, yeah. Um, obviously we've already touched on the, the North Georgia mountains, but uh, have the other, the other regions, seen pretty good response from the doe days and and some of the, the changes in the season structure yeah i, I don't really see um uh, a lot of complaints now um our other deer population that's in 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 my opinion and and pretty terrible shape is is uh is southeast georgia uh, mainly the inland area is not necessarily coastal um, but in the industrial pine forests of Southeast Georgia, it's the same exact situation. I mean, we've got closed canopy forest, uh, but it's all private land and it's, it's being managed intensively for timber and, uh, it's just not good deer habitat, but I, you know, I don't, we don't really get a lot of complaints out of that region and maybe people are just, uh, just accustomed to that, uh, you know, poor producing habitat down there. Because uh, it's been that way for quite some time, so um, I don't know that it's you know we haven't limited the the either sex days down there that much because um, you, you know in the mountains the mountains can actually uh, support more deer than what are up there right now. But in in southeast Georgia, I don't know that I would want to uh, to try to boost that population just because of the habitat limitations. So, um, but they don't. You know, I, I don't generally hear a lot of complaints out of that region about too few deer. Um, now, southwest Georgia, um, which is our certainly our our um, most open season, uh, it's either sex all season down there. A lot of agriculture in that area, uh, very productive, grows a lot of a lot of deer and a lot of big deer. Um, they're going to see some changes this year. Uh, you know, when Hurricane Michael came through last year, that um, that uh, really put a damper on the hunting. I mean, every all of the locals down there had a much higher priority, which was recovering from that hurricane and unearthing themselves from the, the tangled mess of trees down there. And uh, we saw a pretty substantial reduction in harvest in those in those hardest hit counties down there. That's another valuable benefit of game check is is being able to look at those differences on a county by county basis. And uh, so I would expect with that lack of harvest last season and a lot of newly formed early successional habitat, they're going to have a pretty, pretty booming year for, for deer this year. Yeah. Any, uh, any major changes going into this, this year's deer season that, that we need to know about as far as season structure, was there, was there much, in this new uh, uh, regulation packet? Yeah, so um, the major change really is um, is the uh, is the Chattahoochee National Forest. Um, but as far as the the, the normal deer seasons, um, there's no uh, no changes this year. The Piedmont is still buck only the first two weeks. We kind of uh, the last regulation cycle it looked really good, so we kind of maintained status quo. Uh, so, so don't really 
expect any changes to the either sex days outside of the national forest. Uh, we had a few um, a few little things that uh, that came up. Um, air rifles were were legalized, um, and I'm sure you know from uh, from last season, uh, hunting over bait was was also legalized uh, statewide instead of just South Georgia, um, and it was actually made official in law uh, this past legislative session. So that's. Um, it's a change on our end, what we see from the policy side on how we word things, but effectively to the hunters, it's not, not much of a difference. Um, so, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's kind of the major thing The air guns and the air bows are, are now, uh, legal during from primitive weapon season on through firearm season. They're not considered archery equipment. Um, but that's, uh, that's a new thing, uh, for, you know, enthusiasts of air rifles and, and uh, people hunting and then uh, uh, developed areas. Uh, those are good alternatives for those. Now, now you mentioned, uh, of course, the legalization of baiting last year, and, and I'm, I'm not going to get into, you know, the pros and cons of baiting or, or all that, but I, I would like to hear as that become legalized, did you notice any impact? And even going back, I guess, when it was legalized in South Georgia, was was there any kind of major impact on the the harvest? Um, slightly, um, but as you know, it's it's hard to say. Well, this was actually a cause and effect relationship uh, without having you know uh, an independent control. Um, you know, and being that a whole large region was changed, it's it's kind of hard to say. But I did look at it comparing north to south and uh, during that time period and uh, back in 2011 when South Georgia went. And um, the first couple of years, harvest was actually down in South Georgia. Um, well, no, we were asking, we did specifically ask people whether they hunted over bait or not. And those that hunted over bait actually had a lower uh, hunter success rate than those that weren't hunting over bait. And then over, uh, after a couple of years that actually flip flopped a little bit, but we're talking low percentages, uh, difference in this harvest rate. Um, my, my guess as to what was going on is, uh, as soon as it was made legal, everybody, a whole bunch of people did it. And, uh, the people that had, had never, uh, made it illegally, had <laughs> um, never done it, I think had some unrealistic expectations of just how well, uh, you know, a mature buck would respond to it. And they probably waited around till then and uh, waiting on deer that, uh, that, don't, that didn't show up to the bait site. And then, uh, then either they, they learned how to more effectively do it or, um, or, or the deer acclimated to it. I, I don't know for sure, but, uh, but then it, it kind of settled out, um, which is, you know, I think pretty common in, in other states. There's a lot of states that have baiting and still some that don't. And, you know, it just doesn't really impact harvest uh, all that much. Once, once, uh, once, you've, once you've made the change and gotten through the, you know, the change, it's not, it doesn't really impact it. We saw the same thing with the legalization of crossbows. You know, they're... Um, you know, a lot of 
people are afraid that all of a sudden the deer harvest is going to go through the roof because deer, you know, our, uh, crossbows are so much more effective than, than, a, than a vertical bow. And then, you know, once the new wears off, people, people kind of just go back to, you know, they, they still kill the number of deer that they want to kill. And then that's kind of where it ends. Freezer factor is what we call it, you know. If you need two deer for the freezer, it doesn't matter whether bait's legal or whether you can use a crossbow or a scope on a muzzle loader. You're probably not going to kill more than two deer if that's all you can fit in your freezer. Exactly. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the things I always seen with the the people that were really uh, adamant about reducing the bag limit. You know, most most people are not shooting, you know, more than a couple deer to begin with. Right. Yeah. And, and my concerns were never, um, you know, never the. Uh, you know the potential impact to uh, to harvest or anything like that. Um, we could have, if I felt like there were a, a reason for concern. I mean, we could have adjusted either sex days or something like that to account for it. But uh, there just wasn't uh, a need to, to offset any any major changes from it. But um, you know, there there are you know there are biological concerns with having. Uh, feed out on the landscape, whether it be hunting in proximity to it or not, um, it does tend to promote the spread of disease better. Uh, so there's my PSA for the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was a uh, excellent segue uh, into into my next question here because uh, I know something that uh, really concerns me and uh, concerns a lot of other hunters out there is chronic wasting disease um, or CWD as it's commonly referred to. Um, and fortunately, of course we, we, you know, we don't have any cases here in Georgia, uh, but it certainly seems to be creeping this way with uh, discoveries in, in Mississippi and, and man, a, a big group popping up in Tennessee. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about why we, as hunters, we should be concerned, and uh, and what George has been doing to, you know, to, to both monitor and, and protect the state from CWD. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the there are a couple of major issues with chronic wasting disease. Um, first, being that the disease is in the same family as as mad cow or bovine spongiform encephalopathy (BSE) as it's also known, is that there is a potential for it to Cross the species barrier and infect humans. It has not ever been documented. Um, all the research on it indicates that there appears to be a pretty strong species barrier there. Um, but that's that's obviously the biggest concern, um, and and that would have major negative implications for for deer hunting, deer management down the road. So that's first and foremost the the biggest concern with it. Um, Secondary to that, uh, it is a it is a very very slow uh, creeping disease that just is rife with complacency where it's been established for a while. Uh, people get real complacent because when they get chronic wasting disease, they don't see you know a deer population crash like you see with hemorrhagic disease. Um, the effects of this disease, we, we don't really know because we haven't, it's not, it hasn't been that long since we discovered it really in any, uh, any large scale. So, um, 
you know, the and the effects that the negative effects to the deer population that we're going to see from this disease are going to be, uh, you know, saddled on our, our grandchildren and our great grandchildren, you know, 50 or 100 years down the road is, is, is where we start to see the major impacts. But, you know, there are already areas right now um, that, uh, you know, 50% of the mature bucks in the population are positive for the disease. And not knowing the human implications, imagine if every other buck you killed, you had to throw the meat in the garbage. Uh, that's that's pretty, you know, that, that, that really cramps your style. And uh, so that's, uh, those are the biggest concerns with it. Now, you know, George is fortunate that we've never really had a, a captive deer industry uh, really get established and, and not established at all in, in terms of whitetails. We have a, a limited amount of, of deer farming of exotic deer, but um, we've, you know, we haven't had imports on, on any of those deer since uh, the 1990s. But, uh, you know, it's getting, uh, it's getting spread all over this country by people moving live deer around. And, and since Georgia has never really allowed that, uh, any of those deer breeding activities, that's one major positive step for us that, uh, that, that we might have a stronghold here and not, and not get it for quite some time. Because it, it will take it, uh, you know, that corner of Tennessee and Mississippi, it will take it a very, very, very long time to spread this far over uh, on its own. It's it, it actually, you know, from deer to deer out in the wild, it doesn't spread super fast. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned, of course, the, you know, the transportation of live deer being a concern. Um, but there's also some concern. I guess, uh, transporting deer carcasses as well. Uh, you know, somebody say goes to a CWD positive state, uh, like Wisconsin and, and kills a big buck and, and then hauls the carcass, you know, back home with them and, and throws, you know, the remains out on the back 40. Um, has Georgia addressed that, that concern? Yes. Um, so it's it's prohibited uh, to bring a deer from any CWD positive state uh, except for boned out meat, um, a cape, and clean skull plate with antlers or any finished taxidermy. Uh, you can bring elk canines or buglers as well as long as they're cleaned off. Uh, so we what we're trying to avoid is any bones and any um, nervous system tissue. Uh, coming into our state from any CWD positive state, but I would go, you know, if I could go back and and redo that that law, I think I would have made it every state because, as we saw with Tennessee, um, it's obvious that chronic wasting disease has been there for quite some time, maybe in excess of a decade, and they just hadn't found it yet. And so, all that time, it was legal to bring the carcass back from Tennessee, and. Uh, and, and it could have been infected. So not, they've never documented spread uh, by that means, by, by um, um, you know, bringing in carcass parts. But uh, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, that we've, we've, we've done out of, out of an abundance of caution. Uh, 
Well, actually, I have actually documented it one time in the case of New York. The way New York found it, it was it was traced back to a to an actual carcass part, but that was a unique situation with some uh, actual captive deer. Um, but uh, no, we we banned it in in two thousand five and ported any any whole carcass or whole head from uh, any CWD positive state. And it is uh, carries a very hefty fine, minimum fifteen hundred dollar fine, uh, possibly up to five thousand dollars. So it's taken very seriously in our state. Uh, same goes with the illegal importation of live deer, um, which not only has state implications, but um, it could have federal imp- implications, Lacey Act violations, which uh, you know I've seen fines upwards, uh, you know. Upwards of $1.6 million for Lacey Act violations of moving deer across state lines illegally, live deer. And, and Georgia is, I, I mean, I know from, from my time with the DNR, uh, Georgia is actively testing deer uh, for CWD, correct? Correct. We have an active surveillance program that we uh, constantly, as we get new information, we're making uh, tweaks to it to, to make sure that we're. Um, effectively sampling the, the population. Right now, we, we focus uh, very heavily on, on our highest uh, highest risk animals. Uh, any sick deer that we can get our hands on, we try to test. Um, our, behind that, um, roadkill deer are a high priority for us. Um, it's uh, They're still trying to get the information published, but I know in, uh, in West Virginia, a roadkill deer, when, when they were doing their sampling, Roadkill deer were 17 times more likely to be positive in the CWD endemic zone than a, than a random hunter killed deer. So, um, so we do uh, we do that, and we do some uh, strategic sampling of random hunter killed deer uh, as well. And one of the things we're working on uh, this year is we are we're working on making testing available to people if they because of the potential for human. Uh, disease with this uh, and it getting closer, we, we felt it was prudent to uh, at least make the testing available to people should they want peace of mind, um, even though we haven't found it here, uh, which, you know, you would have to pay for your test. But uh, I'm hoping by this fall, uh, you'll be able to call and schedule an appointment to have a sample collected and, uh, and get your get a deer tested for CWD if you so choose. Okay, so if if somebody sees a sickly deer while they're out, or, or shoots a deer that just you know is emaciated, doesn't look right, what what's the best course of action for them? They need to call their local game management office. They can pull it up on uh, GeorgiaWildlife.com and find the office locations there, or uh, look in the hunting uh, hunting regulations book, and our regional office numbers are in that book and call and uh, talk to the biologists for that area and uh, tell them what's going on with that deer. And we, we want to we know about sick deer, uh, regardless of the circumstances. That's how we, you know, we rely heavily on reports from the public. So, you know, if you find a deer dead on your property and it's obviously obvious that it doesn't have a gunshot wound or was, was hit by a car, you know, we want to we know about it. And that's how we track those things. We, if the carcass is fresh enough, we'll often uh, go physically pick up the whole entire carcass and take it up to uh, 
take it up to the wildlife disease study in Athens and, and do a full diagnostic uh, necropsy on it. All right. Well, we are, uh, man, we're, we're approaching or right at an hour now. Um, before we, before we hang up here, I did want to, one last thing I wanted to touch on was, uh, it is, uh, quota hunt time here as far as applying for the quota hunts that application period is open uh, now through is it I think September 1st for um, here yes yeah is there uh, can you give us any suggestions now, now I'm not going to ask you the, the, the best WMA for deer hunting but um, can you give us any suggestions for maybe uh, somebody that's after a quality buck and then you know, versus maybe somebody that just wants uh, the maximum opportunity to, to shoot a deer and put it in the freezer. Yeah. So um, quality deer, and, and you know this just because of where you work when you work for us. Our West <laughs> Central Georgia is an ex- excellent place for both quality and quantity of deer. So any of the quota hunts are, you know, the, uh, uh, any of the uh, sections of the Chattahoochee uh, fall line WAs. Um, and uh, going all the way down in southwest Georgia, which there's fewer quota hunts down there. Flint River's a small uh, 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 Flint River and River Creek are, are excellent areas down there. Just not a lot of a lot of quota hunts down there. But uh, as far as absolute quantity, and they're worth the wait to uh, uh, just for the experience. But if you save up your points, go to Osceola or Saplo at least one time in your hunting career because those places are loaded with deer. And it's just an awesome experience going out on those uh, our, our our undeveloped barrier islands, and um, it's the deer aren't real big, but man, it's a fun hunt, and there's a whole lot of them. So uh, I, I would recommend that for anybody that's not uh, that's not ever been on a on, on one of the barrier you know the the boat access only barrier islands and gone on the hunt. It's a different experience compared to most of our boat hunts. Yeah, I definitely want to want to do one of the uh, Barrier Island deer hunts. I've been to Osceola and and got to shoot some hogs there, uh, and it is a uh, a neat experience for sure. And and I'm all about uh, quantity. I like filling that freezer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I you know I don't even shoot for antlers anymore. I'm a, I'm pretty much just a doe hunter these days, and you know it gets me more access to property if I'm. If I'm uh, willing to shoot those and forego bucks, so I, I hear you. Absolutely. Well, we're uh, we're over an hour now, so uh, Charlie, I just want to I want to thank you so much for for taking your time out of your day and uh, and joining us here to to talk about deer hunting and deer management. And uh, we definitely want to have you back on here uh, later to uh, continue this conversation, man. There's so there's so much that, uh, you can cover when it comes to the deer hunting here in Georgia, man. Thank you for having me. I always, uh, you know, my, my whole life revolves around deer. And so I never get tired of talking about them. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with, uh, Charlie Killmaster as much as I did. Uh, Charlie is always a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Georgia deer hunting and and deer management. And I'm certain that won't be the last time he joins us here on the podcast. So um, with that, we'll wrap up uh, episode one here of the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast. Uh, I hope you'll take a few minutes to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. Uh, Give us a positive review. Share us with your friends, whether that be by word of mouth or on social media. Uh, We appreciate 
appreciate any support you can give us in that manner. Um, we just uh, we want to provide you guys with uh, with great hunting information and, and tips that can make you more successful in the field. Um, but you know, we want to know that there's an audience out there listening, and, and we need your help to spread the word. So, uh, until next time, I'm Brian Grossman with the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast. Uh, take care. <laughs>